Hello, everyone. I'm Britt, and welcome to Educate Me, a podcast where we share stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. This week, my guest is Raj. Raj, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. So I'm Viraj Mute, and uh, I'm currently a postdoc at Iowa State University in the EOB department. So I'm a bioinformatician, and I got my PhD in bioinformatics and computational biology from Iowa State University. And uh, my research was on understanding the evolution of mitochondria in animals. And before that, I got my master's in industrial biotechnology from Northwestern University. And my research there was completely different. It was uh, wet lab research. It was, I, I was uh, studying the biofilm characteristics of a pathogen, Legionella pneumophila. It causes a Legionnaire's disease. Mm. And that was my first degree in the US. Before that, I got my bachelor's in biotech from Mumbai, India, where I'm from originally. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, I ended up in Ames, Iowa. Awesome. Well, what made you switch your research from your master's to your PhD? Sure. So after my, after my master's, I did a short uh, kind of a research assistantship in a lab in Rutgers University in New Jersey. Mm. And it was there, I was working on like the wet lab, wet lab side of uh, genome sequencing so actually preparing the libraries and so on. But over there, I got a chance to work with uh, the kind of bioinformatic side of genome sequencing and annotation, and I got really interested in it. And that is how I kind of got really interested in uh, getting a PhD in bioinformatics. I still wanted to study evolution, but more less so from a lab bench, uh, but more so from my laptop. So uh, that's how I kind of got interested in uh, bioinformatics. Uh, but the overall interest remains the same to study evolution. I love that you're just studying it instead of at the lab bench, <laughs> studying it through a laptop. That's great. That's great. And so when you were then looking for your PhD program, I'm always curious about this. Uh, did you care more about like the location or the program or the supervisor or was there something else that really led you to study at Iowa State? So um, at Iowa State, frankly, Iowa State University was referred to me by the person in whose lab I did my uh, kind of research assistantship mm. at Rutgers University. He was for some time in the University of Iowa. So he recommended Iowa State to me. That's how I heard about it. But one thing which I learned, thank God, very quickly is to choose a lab, not a university, because I feel that at the PhD level, the university doesn't really matter that much, uh, but the lab really does. And I had a bunch of labs that shortlisted from Iowa State University, which... uh, Eventually, I was choosing between Iowa State University and uh, Urbana-Champaign. And mm. it was basically, I decided on the labs at Iowa State University. That's how I made my decision. That makes a lot of sense. And was there something specific that you were looking for in the lab? Or was it just kind of like, you knew it when you saw it type thing? Well, <clears throat> my overall goal was to study evolution. That's kind of like a very broad topic. But uh, I was really interested in working with non-model organisms. So I 
it's a personal choice i never wanted to work with human or mice or arabidopsis model organisms which have a lot of people have worked with i was more interested with marine animals mm. so there was this lab here eventually whose lab i ended up joining who did a lot of work on sponges and they had a project going on where he was studying the phylogenetic relationships between sponges in lake baikal in russia and uh, unfortunately the year i joined that project funding ended oh no <laughs> but overall his his lab still had amazing research going on and uh, it's yeah so that's how i ended up choosing iowa state university there was another person whose lab i was very interested in and she was working with uh, the evolution of uh, social behavior in bees and looking at it from a genomic point of view so it's kind of looking at some of these different uh, projects and i think the labs at iowa state had much more interesting research than what was offered there so yeah so that's how i selected iowa state that's cool yeah that makes that makes sense and i think it's it's helpful for for future graduate students to know like what should they be looking for and what should they be looking at um so uh, this is probably a tricky question but in your research like what's what's the most exciting finding or what's been the most exciting project that you've worked on all right so the most exciting finding i would say is that so my research project just to give a very brief out mm-hmm. brief background is i'm i was looking at how the mitochondrial proteome evolved in animals and i guess why i was interested is we have a mitochondria in most of our cells it keeps us alive we it has its own mitochondrial genome it has like 13 protein coding genes 13 proteins uh, encoded in its genome but the total number of proteins working in it is over 1500 so there are proteins from our nuclear genome which have to be imported into each and every mitochondria wow. correctly to keep us alive oh wow and and we don't know how many proteins still are in our mitochondria right now and we are heavily using our mitochondria for developing many therapeutics and stuff like that and we still don't know what all is in there which is a fun which is a kind of intriguing part of it so uh, i guess that's one very interesting observation from my research i did not work on that but an interesting observation from my research was that we have i eventually one of my projects was developing a machine learning tool to predict mitochondrial proteins in non model organisms because all experimental work kind of focuses on human mouse mouse and yeast these are organisms which are model organisms a lot of people work on them and no one typically gives funding for non model organisms like well sponges and what we found is that there are a couple of sponges called these calcarean sponges in which we predicted or predicted that their total number of mitochondrial proteins was more than 3 times what is there in our mitochondria so these are really simple animals which uh, are sponges they are they don't move for most of their lives they aren't they <laughs> they don't really encounter a lot of exciting stuff down there but they have so many proteins in their mitochondria which we don't even know so far and i thought that kind of insight from these non model organisms was most exciting and uh, hopefully eventually i'll work more on it so yeah yeah that's really incredible uh so so you're doing a, a postdoc right now and and um 
are you able to continue with the PhD research that you started or were you starting on a new project? So kind of. So it is still looking at mitochondria of non-bilaterian animals, but has nothing to do with my PhD. Mm. And that is because I have been, I was, it's in the same lab where I did my PhD basically. Oh, okay. But uh, it, so what I was advised is that your postdoc should be different from your PhD research. And the whole point of postdoc is to get more uh, experience with more techniques and to basically learn more so that when you start your own lab, you have this right. whole bunch of techniques together. Just not, just not keep on continuing your PhD research. So right. I'm still looking at one particular protein from the mitochondria of uh, a group of animals, the octocorals. Uh, these are uh, relatives of jellyfishes, sea anemones, and so forth. But I'm not. I'm focusing more on like the phylogenetic aspect of that. So building phylogenetic trees and understanding how they are evolving, how that entire gene family is evolving, uh, what its potential function could be, and so on. So it's kind of, but not related to my PhD. Yeah. So basically like building on in the sense that you had all these skills that you developed through your PhD and you still need all those, but now you're adding on to it. Yeah, exactly. And that was a big kind of reason for me to select this project. So yeah, so I don't get to do repetitive stuff, but uh, learn new techniques. Yeah. It keeps it interesting and, and helps you move on in, in your skills and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now that you can look back on your PhD, mm. <laughs> now that you're at the other side of it, mm. um, what would you say was like the biggest challenge that you had to overcome? So, the, so a lot of challenges for sure. But I think the biggest challenge was, I have to say, and I, I did not know the term for this until I finished my PhD because I joined Twitter much, much later after my PhD. So I wasn't much active anywhere on social media to know yeah. these terms, but I learned of the term of imposter syndrome. Ah, yes. a, but I, the reason, the challenge which I faced is uh, I was a complete experimental research oriented person before this. So I did wet lab research. I looked at mm -hmm. bacteria. I grew them on Petri dishes, looked like worked on a lab bench. And from that, I joined a program where everyone besides me had a degree in either computer science or bioinformatics. And it was pretty challenging because my first ever Hello World program, like that's the first thing uh, people code when they learn programming. That was my first day of my PhD. And going kind of my first year was basically in this complete denial that I don't fit in because everyone else knows so knows so much. Like they can write full scripts and they can write their own programs. They know a couple of languages like R, Python, and so on. Yeah. And my first year went in this huge moment of self-doubt whether I actually fit in here or did I make a mistake by completely changing gears. The reason I could do that is because uh, America does give you this opportunity. This is one thing which I do love about uh, education here is that you can switch between careers as long as you want to and mm -hmm. then you get the opportunity it's not so much uh, in India so India has different sets of pros and cons 
the education system. I'm not saying anything bad about that. But yeah. one issue we have there is switching between careers is very difficult. All uh, right. Uh, yeah. In the US, you can kind of switch between different careers more easily. And that's why I could do that. But it give, but that was my biggest challenge, just trying to kind of convince myself for years and years, right? And it did not stop till I got my PhD, to be <laughs> frank. And after that, when because you keep on, I kept on comparing myself to other people who had previous degrees in computer science and it was a very uphill journey. I kind of knew that from the beginning. I like it's not that I expected it to be a breeze, but I did not anticipate this kind of feeling of self-doubt, which creeps in with every assignment, every presentation. Like when you give a presentation on a project, you feel that you don't know as much as the first people in sitting in front of you, and then you kind of have to work harder than other people. And I wish I knew there was a community to help me because I kept mm-hmm. on thinking, I did not know that this was a common, this was a very common feeling and that most people who came in front of me might have felt the same thing. Like it does, it, it would be the same, but I wish I knew that before. But according to me, that this kind of accepting the fact that I can do it and it's fine if I don't know as much as other people took was the biggest challenge according to me in this. It was a, yeah, sorry. <clears throat> sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, like, like it's so true how, um, like, it's so much more prevalent than we think. And unfortunately, academia often just makes us be quiet about it and not share it so that we think we're all alone in it. Um, and you said, so, like, community to help you understand that other people were going through it as well. So how did you find that community? Oh. So I found that community, so a couple of things happened and which really helped me in this. One was uh, as simple as talking to my professor, Mm. my mentor. And uh, I just want to point out one thing that, uh, you know, academia overall can, is a very, uh, like any job field, to be frank, it's, I know people say academia is tough, but it's essentially like any other job sector, it's tough. And (laughs) It has its problems like other sectors have. And this one is like, it kind of forces you into this kind of imposter syndrome. But when I spoke to my PI, he told me something. There were two, my co-PIs really helped me out. So first my PI, who I'm, whose lab I'm in I'm right now, he told me that your, think about your PhD, like they just think about what you're doing. What you are doing, no one has done before. Even yeah. I don't know what you know. So you have, when you go into a meeting with your committee, they are genuinely asking you questions because they don't know. And yeah, that kind of gives yeah. this big boost of confidence that you are doing something novel. It gives you so that one thing helped. My other copia told me what I really feel PhD is more about. She told me that to, people get confused. Like in, PhD, in your PhD, you are not here to do groundbreaking research. All you're here to do is learn how to do independent research. Mm. Ask questions, answer them, and then find out ways to do that independently. Like know which people you need to ask for help, contact them, get work done. Because it's kind of building you, it's building that skills in you. So I think these two advice, this is the first thing which helped me. And the next thing was something which um, was not very common in 
India, but here, uh, counseling was very helpful in university. That's yeah. when, it, it, that is something which people really don't talk much about in academia, which is not healthy, I feel. I think the conversation about going to a counselor needs to be much more prevalent. Like that needs to be in your kind of introduction to PhD sort of a time frame as not, as opposed to when you completely break down and someone tells you that, by the way, you could have done this. Yeah, that's such a good point in, in that... I feel like in, in orientations, it's like, oh yeah, that's the student wellness center and see a counselor, but because no one's really talking about, oh yeah, I, that's where I see a counselor. You can see one there too, um, to kind of normalize it, but we're all kind of suffering in silence when we're all, I mean, so much of the, the PhD experience is common, like so much of what you're saying, like I'm in a completely different field, but so much of what you're saying resonates in the sense that, yeah, like I, I felt like particularly the writing, like I'm really, I really struggle with writing and getting stuff down on paper. Um, you asked me to do a workshop on it. I'm good. <laughs> but getting it down on paper is so, so difficult for me. And I feel like I'll, I'll feel like I'm the only one struggling with this. And I saw today someone on, on, um, a Facebook writing group that I'm part of was like, I'm only three months into my PhD and I just got a, I just got a, um, accepted with revisions. If I can do it, anyone can do it. And I'm like, I can't do that. I haven't done that. Like I, I was really mad because so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, made me, it made me so mad. <laughs> no. And that is specifically the reason why you'll see that I created my Twitter account very early and I left very early and stopped coming until a certain point because it kind of really made huge dents in my confidence every time I would go there. And, and it kind of, you can see this kind of thing happening even now, especially during this lockdown, uh, you'll see posts going around that, uh, like if you haven't learned new skills in this period, then oh, yeah. you're wasting your time. And I, it's, yeah, it's this kind of, uh, when done correctly, I found my support group on, uh, like social media, definitely. But that was after a lot of time going through, like going through this maze of people with this kind of, what's the term? Is it toxic positivity? I can't yeah, describe yeah. what it's called. Yeah. But it's something like that. And it it's unfortunate, but uh, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, every time I go on Twitter, I feel like someone's sharing another paper that I'm like, oh, I need to read that now. Um, but then someone will say like, I just downloaded 50 papers. I don't have time to read. I'm like, okay, I'm not the only one. So I think there's, there's the two sides of it and, and social media can like, it can be so good for finding community, but then it can also just feed that sense of imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's surprising how many people know about it, how very few people talk about it. It's because even when I talk with people I knew from my PhD, they'll talk as if they know about this kind of anti-syndrome from beforehand. But then why? During the PhD, it was completely unheard of. Like it was, it, I, yeah, I just, the biggest challenge definitely has been kind of making sure that I have my self-confidence that I can do it. And yeah, that's, that's, I would say. <laughs> 
it's mm-hmm. i just hope that the, and i felt that this should have been covered initially like about what all is there in the university because i'm there's everything you need in the university you have counselors who have seen i would have to say tens and thousands of students who have the same issue right and uh, but we no we don't really even think about that when we are mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and yeah. it makes me think of like at a couple experiences um mm-hmm. one in my masters where uh, a friend told me later that they they felt like an imposter in their in our class because mm-hmm. one of the reasons was because i knew all the theories we were talking about already and so i was able to contribute and i'm like yeah but that's just because like i have a background in this exact subject like i did my bachelor's in second language education this course is second language education like mm-hmm. there's a reason and and it's okay that you don't have that background yet you you have that and then so i decided um in in all of my courses after that that if i didn't understand something i would be very much like i don't get it can you just like explain this but then that happened all the time too like there were times where things were just completely going over my head but i just decided that i was going to be like you know what like you can somebody explain this again or can we talk this through can we pause i'm not getting it and maybe i'm i'm the only one who's not getting it but i mean chances are and i always tell my students like if you have a question chances are somebody else in the class has the exact same question um and then uh yeah and then when i was writing like i yeah like i said it's with writing i feel like i'm definitely the only one who can't write um but then other people tell me no no you're a good writer and then i'll get i'll get rejected from a conference or i'll get re- like a paper will get rejected and they go oh i'm not a good writer so how do you like it sounds like you've got a good handle on this kind of now but when you're when you're faced with those things that come up like a paper rejection or a conference rejection or whatnot how do you then make sure that you don't just start thinking that you're an imposter again yeah that i highly doubt i still have any answer to that question yeah. <laughs> but uh what i would say is in this so i want to tell uh, so this is of course not an answer to this question but uh some things which help me overcome this first is uh, with my family so i have my i live here with my wife so it is difficult to get through it was it would have been impossible for me to get through this without kind of her support so like her kind of uh shoulder to cry on sort of a thing and the other person is we had this amazing program coordinator and she retired and every time we even got a bad grade like we would go there and talk to her and she was kind of like we used to call her our grandma because she would talk to us and the one they really inter- and she kept on telling this thing to me which really kind of got to me is that don't worry i have many students who come here who feel exactly the same you're all in the same boat and it's at that point when it's when someone needs to tell this to you again and again and again it may not make a difference at that point but eventually it's going to start you're going to st- kind of have that at the back of your mind every time you feel a rejection and another thing is if eventually you will face rejection and that's what a phd will teach you is how to handle rejections because 
I feel this is one advantage, one thing which a PhD can teach you, which most jobs typically don't, is that if you uh, have any issues in a job, you have you more than more often than not have an option of changing it. In a PhD, what is going to happen is you have dedicated about five years of your life to it. At that point, when you face your biggest hurdle, when you want to give up, you come up with a way to overcome it. And mm-hmm. that may be healthy or unhealthy. Eventually, hopefully, you have a support system to kind of have a healthy way to handle it. But yeah, um, unfortunately, I don't have an answer to this. And I'm, I'm sure that the solution for this would be personal for most graduate students. But overall, uh, I would have to say that if I ha- if I knew about some of these resources on social media in my university before, I would have handled them much better than I did. Mm-hmm. That is my personal opinion about this. Yeah. And again, if I just spoken to my professors before, it's simple as that. Because I feel more often than not, the stress comes from we kind of corner ourselves, we kind of push ourselves into a corner rather than academia doing that to us. We mm-hmm. may have the nicest PIs who have seen about maybe dozens of students below them go through the same issue but we are scared of going and talking to them because of horror stories we have heard about other PIs doing what not to their so I feel that first step is the most important and if I had done that earlier maybe I would have handled this much better so talking to your professors directly about any stress then yep that's I'm not sure that was an answer to your question but uh, that's what I thought about. That yeah. Those are my thoughts on how to handle it. Yeah, I think it's helpful because I hear you saying, like, go back to your support, right? Like, go back to to who your supports are. And also this idea of, um, I don't know, like, like, keeping evidence. So having evidence that you're not an imposter so that when you get these things, you can go back and say, well... Mm-hmm a lot of other people also got rejected or look at all the times I got accepted um, and, and those sorts of things to, to support you as well and to kind of change that mindset. Yeah, because I remember my first paper rejection. Of course, my first paper was rejected. Yeah. And that's when my professor is like, eh, that's fine. We just send it here. And I'm like, he took this as if eh, that's, that's, that's fine. It's, it's, it's all part and parcel of this. Maybe he didn't like it. And I wasn't sure how, why was he taking it so well? Because it felt like a big failure to me. Mm. It was much later that I realized that, yeah, that's, that's bound to happen. Yeah. But, you know, like it's, that's when I realized I need to talk to my professor more about some of these things. But I feel that as much as this imposter syndrome, the one of the bigger issues again was uh, being away from home. So being an international student. Mm-hmm made it much more difficult because in Bombay, even though it's Bombay, it's a international, as it's a metropolitan city. We don't talk, we don't get a chance to interact with people from so many countries and so many places with so many different backgrounds and uh, uh, personalities. It becomes intimidating by itself to be in this position in a new place where uh, you not only have to be you don't have not only have to deal with this new environment, but then also learn a new subject. So I feel mm-hmm. that and small, small things help. And which is why I, okay, 
I absolutely love the Midwest. Like I know it gets cold, but I love. I have been in love with the Midwest simply because of how friendly people have been, mm-hmm. and it's my personal uh, this thing. Personal again, it's my personal experience. May or may not be true for many others that I can't say. For me, I have had the luxury of have living in two very nice places, actually small, nice little mid uh, Midwest suburbs, Ames and. Even Evanston, that's next to Chicago, mm. in which it didn't matter, but it still gets very intimidating. So, I, and that I, it's very difficult to connect to other international. It's very important and difficult to connect to other international students. How do you, how do you actually uh, celebrate your festivals? How do you kind of maintain your own sense of uh, community? as well as connecting to this broader audience. So you don't want to be sucked into this vacuum where you just stay with people of your community, which kind of defeats the whole purpose of uh, coming to a foreign country to study, to meet, learn from other people. Yeah. But you also find it very difficult to maintain that balance. So that balance was very tricky to handle. And when it gets like, what is it? Uh, it's what dark now at six, it started getting yeah. dark at 4.30. Yeah, so these same things here. <laughs> add to homesickness a lot. So I feel this, along with imposter syndrome, were two of the biggest difficulties which I faced, and I still do, to be honest. Yeah, and I think that's totally, totally natural. For I mean, I see it all the time uh, for international students too, especially when they first uh, get here. I mean, we hosted a orientation for international students every year, and you would see at the mixers everyone just kind of goes and finds their their own culture to start off with. And we were like, oh, we want them to mix and mingle. But maybe it's like, okay, that's a week later after they found something to like, it's okay. Like there's other people here that kind of get what I'm going through. Because I remember too, like my um, first teaching uh, position was in, was in Africa. And then I went to England and both times as well, it's like, Oh, other Canadians. Yay. And you kind of like (laughs) grasp on and you're like, Oh, we can have Thanksgiving together Mm -hmm. and, and these sorts of things. So I think it's only natural to do that. Oh yeah. (laughs) Because I went through this whole phase that when I came, I knew this was going to be an issue. So what I did initially when I came in, I just joined a whole bunch of non-Indian groups, Mm. like improv. I started doing improv. I uh, I had this. Uh, there was this. Uh, there was this uh, church close by, which kind of paired an international student with someone from Ames. The mm. idea was to kind of this. So I did that. So we had conversations about what actually happens in Ames. I hung around, huh? and then kind of isolated myself from the entire community. Then suddenly went back into the. Indian Students Association. It kind of took some time to figure out the balance, but I feel it's slightly tricky to kind of maintain that uh, balance, I feel. Yeah, but uh, overall, the university as such is a very welcoming place, but but I feel that it still gets slightly tricky. It's slightly more intimidating to be confident in a PhD in another country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I contemplated doing my graduate work in, in the UK, but that's like hardly a different country. I mean, there's some things that are different between Canada and the UK, but uh, uh, not a whole lot. Um, but I can't imagine. And then I think particularly people where if you're doing your degree in English and it's not your first language, 
they're going to experience imposter syndrome even more so because I mean, how could you not? Yeah. So fun part. So I've, uh, English was my first language mm-hmm. in India's Indian Bombay schools. English is still your first language. Right. So you're taught in yeah. English from first grade. I, while growing up, my, I spoke with my mom in English for the longest time because language barriers. Mm-hmm. And so I have always been comfortable in English. And I, when I taught, I taught every single year of my PhD. And this is the first thing which I would tell everyone to be kind of aware of is that because there would be students from different countries who would have trouble either understanding me or me understanding them, yes. or they understanding others. And I yes. saw people kind of group together in kind of clicks because of this kind of barrier and not blaming them, but it's my very natural. If you feel intimidated, mm-hmm. you would hang around. And so that is one of the things I tried to handle even when I taught is kind of just mixing up the class every single time. And I know it's not going to be comfortable initially, but I wanted to make sure that, and I understand that totally. So it's, I try to kind of make people comfortable as much mm-hmm. as possible. It's, it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I also try, I mean, also, I have the privilege of of teaching in, in my own country. And so it's easy for me to be like, well, like, of course you can understand me. I speak English with a perfect Canadian accent, but I know I speak really fast. <laughs> so mm-hmm. what I also do is I'll say like at the beginning of classes, I know I talk really fast. It's a Canadian thing. Uh, I make a joke about having to speak before our mouths freeze and then, <laughs> and then, but I kind of normalize it where if they don't understand or they need me to repeat something, it's my fault. Not, not, it's not on them. So hopefully to like relieve the embarrassment of them having to ask for clarification or ask to repeat something. Yeah. 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 I, I did that too, because I know my, so the, the beauty of Midwest, uh, Midwest is that uh, it's, I feel that more people can pronounce my name better in the Midwest than they do back in India. I <laughs> yeah. Because India also has many languages and yeah. things. I feel that it's somehow be- pronounced much better here. But what I do, what I used to do, and I miss teaching. I really miss teaching. But what I used to do when I would start a class is I kind of had an idea eventually after the first, first couple of semesters, like a whole bunch of words which they may have trouble with. So I would literally write it down on the board like no context. And then just when I said it, I would point at it basically because I knew that I, I'll have some issue pronouncing it or things like that. So, and, uh, but yeah, I also told the same thing to them. Like, don't worry about me. Like I'm here to help you. Mm-hmm. I don't want to want you to go through an entire class without understanding what I say. So it's, and yeah, it, yeah, this, I, I had the, I, I miss teaching a lot. That was one of the biggest things I learned during my PhD. I started teaching. I knew I had to teach for my entire, all my PhD, like mm. entire, every semester. I hated it when I knew, came to know that I had to do it. And eventually towards the end, I couldn't, like literally I would wait for the day I would teach because yeah. it would be that stress-free opportunity just to talk to these young students. And it, yeah, it was fun. To say awesome. the least. Yeah. So you've also found a love for teaching. 
Oh yeah, I I really cannot imagine my future without teaching. Wherever I end up, but teaching has to be there because yeah, because I <laughs> so my mom, my wife's mom, both teachers. I have grown up in like a teaching family. I uh, yeah, I and I taught both lectures and labs throughout for like mm. six years, and I can't yeah, and it's just the most. amazing experience i have and it not only just not only just for communicating but even for my own research like it helped my own research because it gave me the confidence to explain my presentation like whatever i want to explain so for instance i have to ex- things like very difficult terms like i taught an intro course intro bio course and i had to explain all these terms to people from majors from economics to can't even like i can't even imagine like they had it was a compulsory thing they had to take oh wow and yeah they they helped me so much it was kind of pretty fascinating yeah circling back do you think that helped with the imposter syndrome in the sense that like you knew that well i can explain it in really simple terms so then i must really understand it yes no it it definitely helped a lot um uh, and that i unfortunately that that i fortunately learned very quickly is that if i because that's what my professor said whenever your committee comes into the room <laughs> they don't know what you know that's yeah. because they have no idea and so you have to explain everything to them as if they were your students and that really helps and that is one thing which i feel has not been stressed enough i is how important it is for anyone to communicate their research so doing some simple things like participating in the 3 minute thesis thing it kind of makes you question um uh, everything you ever knew about your research so <laughs> uh am i going about the time limit at this point no no we're good we can keep going yet all right so i just want to tell one because i also did a uh, dip a certificate course in science communication at the university mm. in which we have to have a meet your there's a meet a scientist event in mainly for children uh, and uh, we have to explain everything about our research to these kids and i had a bunch i had a young boy and a girl brother sister who came and spoke to me for one hour on house what sponges are because they love spongebob so much uh, we had we went through natio tutorials we went through like bits and pieces of the spongebob episodes and it's these it's at that point when i realized something is that you really are missing something in your phd if you can't explaining it if you can't explain it to a young child and it's the most difficult thing to do mm-hmm. but uh yeah so that experience was that kind of science communication i'm a mentor in that program right now so i'm like mentoring others oh, that's awesome that same thing and i would say that i'm i'm kind of still surprised that science communication isn't a required topic in phd curriculum right now it's unfortunate but yeah it's I it's interesting cuz i i it really feels like science communication and 
external communication is much more pushed in in the sciences. So um, the three minute thesis competitions are all STEM. Mm -hmm. And very rarely do you have people from education or humanities or social sciences even, like some from social sciences, but much more on the sciencey part of social sciences. Um, but yet, like everybody could benefit from being able to explain their thesis in that way, or everyone would be able to, would benefit from, like, even you're studying like classic history, um, and, and Greek and Roman studies, like it, it would really help, I think too. So I would encourage everyone to do three minute thesis. I haven't yet done it myself, but I would encourage everybody else to do it. Yeah, because essentially what happens there is you have to keep on producing parts of your, you tend to hide behind language, scientific language. And that happens a lot. The minute you have to explain everything bare bones in three minutes, you don't have luxury of that language. And it you kind of see the kind of the skeleton of your own research and you very quickly see anything that's missing and mm-hmm. all you can do. And so I also highly recommend doing that. Like it's not about winning, losing. It's like literally doing that just for the exercise of doing it, I feel. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. So to wrap things up here, mm-hmm. um, what piece of advice would you give to, to students who are currently in their master's or PhD? Yeah, so what, what advice I would give to students is, uh, is basically, I would give two pieces of advice. One is uh, if, if you feel that you don't know enough and you don't belong there, and if you look to your left and to your right, there's probably one more person feeling exactly the same. You're not alone. Yeah. And don't worry about it. If you do, then you also, then please don't hesitate uh, to make use of uh, mental health services, counseling yeah. services at your university because it may not be the most apparent, like it may not be the most visible thing to you because not many people stress on it. But if you have not found out, uh, all right, so I may have to change that a bit because I would highly recommend people, uh, even if you don't feel like you need to know, need to go to a counselor, at least find out how would you go to a counselor if Mm -hmm. you need to. That's the first step. Like even if you don't need to right now. Yeah. And if you are, in your mid PhD, for instance, or towards the end of your PhD, now would probably recommend going irrespective because there are you may be facing stress which uh, you could have easily dealt with and handled your transition towards your uh, defense much better. Yeah, had you gone there, and I realized this the hard way, but. Uh, yeah, I would say these, I would basically just say these two things. And yeah, basically, I would just end with just enjoy your PhD because, uh, yeah. you know, yeah, it's it's going to be difficult. But that last minute when, if, uh, when you defend, it's unlike anything. And when you go up on that stage, which, uh, yeah, which maybe after a few years can start again, uh, yeah, that feeling would be quite something so it's like the whatever's ending it's difficult but at whatever's at the end of it is definitely worth everything you're going right now so 
this. That's, I guess, what I would say. That's excellent advice. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And it's nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Educate Me. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and subscribe on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, or wherever you listen to podcasts. A huge thank you to our audio producer, Sean Paris. Join us again next week for more stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. Until then, stay in school.